Welcome everyone. Uh, my name is Arne Westad. I'm one of the directors in LSE Ideas with Professor Mick Cox, who's in the audience as well tonight. Um, it's a great pleasure to see as many of you here. Uh, it's a packed audience because we have competition tonight. As some of you will know, we are competing with the president of Chile. Um, and after recent events, that's someone else earlier on today com compared that to uh, competing with Jesus Christ after Lake Genesaret. Um, there is something to that. Now, if um, there is anyone after those wonderful events that we were witnessing in Chile who would be able to compete with President Piñera, uh, certainly among historians, I think it would be uh, our speaker tonight, Professor Neil Ferguson, uh, whose day job is as Professor of History at Harvard and Professor of Business Administration at the Harvard Business School. And this year, Professor Ferguson is the Philippe Roman Professor of History and International Affairs here at the LSE. And Neil, it's really a tremendous pleasure for me to welcome you here and welcome you to LSE. Now, anyone who has uh, been following public debates about history or politics over the past decade uh, will know who Professor Ferguson is. It's impos impossible not to. That's both because of the way he has engaged as a public intellectual in some of the key debates of the age, but it's first and foremost, I would argue, because of his incredible output as an historian. Uh, there's no one else I know, absolutely no one, who's been as productive in this field over the past decade as Neil has been. Going from the world's banker, the history of the House of Rothschild from 1998, to the pity of war, a great book on the First World War, to the cash nexus, uh, to empire in 2003, the war of the world in 2006, and most recently, High Financial, The Life and Times of Sigmund Warburg, uh, which came out earlier this year. He's now working, uh, for good measure, on a biography of Henry Kissinger. So he has his work cut out for him uh, over the next few years, among many other things that he will be doing simultaneously. So we are all much looking forward to your year at LSE, Neil, though you will leave a few other historians breathless. Uh, in your wake as you are lecturing to our students here and as you are discussing history and international affairs in ideas with the other people who are there. Let me use the opportunity to thank the ideas team, wonderful group of people that we have at LSE Ideas who's helped prepare uh, both this lecture and Neil's stay at the LSE. I also want to thank the school and particularly its director, uh, Howard Davis, who has been uh, very forthcoming in helping to organize uh, the events that we are running in Ideas. First and foremost, my thanks to uh, Emmanuel Roman, who made this chair possible uh, through a kind donation in the name of his father, Philippe Roman. Uh, and it's Emmanuel's gift that makes it possible for us to invite such an incredible group of historians and political scientists to teach at LSE for a year. Now, Neil, I've been looking forward to this evening for a few years since we first discussed it over beers in Boston. Professor Neil Ferguson, welcome to LSE. Ladies and gentlemen, Professor Neil Ferguson. Well, thank you very much indeed, uh, Arne. Thank you to the Ideas team. Thank you, uh, above all, to uh, Emmanuel Roman. It's a great pleasure to be here with you uh, this evening. 
I'm going to do something extraordinarily reckless, which will almost certainly go wrong, which is I'm going to try and show you a video clip. And I haven't rehearsed doing this. But it's quite a nice clip, and if I can pull it off without complete embarrassment, then uh, it will be a good start to this talk. It's also rather appropriate because it's actually about a demonstration of technological, technological competence. But since I'm now a Mac person, there's every probability that I will not get this to work. There's also a distinct probability, since this is Britain, that the computer won't be online. It looks very promising. <laughs> so who knows? Let's see. If it doesn't work, then I'll just have to kind of simulate it. Um, oh, that's not very... <laughs> you, you see? <laughs> Ask me later. Thank you very much. Now let's see if this works. If it doesn't, then we can all just... Oh, here we go. Oh, no, it's looking, looking promising. So unprofessional of me to do this. I should really have come here earlier. But, okay, let's see if this is going to work. Tense moments for the lecturer. The other possibility is that the bandwidth will be so narrow that this won't work at all. Yeah. yeah. Here we go. There must be a free exchange of ideas. Uh, there are some instances where you may be ahead of us. For example, make in this the development of, your, of the thrust of your rockets for the investigation of outer space. There may be some instances, for example, Give me some volume here. where we're ahead of you. But in order for both of us, for both of us, yeah, of it, for both of us, we <laughs> will <laughs> never succeed anything. <laughs> well, there are subtitles, so watch this. Stick with it. You, you must not be afraid of ideas. <laughs> Well, then let's have more exchange of them. We all agree on that, right? to leave uh, Nikita Khrushchev uh, and Richard Nixon, then vice president, at what was, in many ways, a seminal moment in the Cold War. 
This was the famous uh, kitchen debate that happened at the American exhibit at the Moscow uh, Trade Fair in 1959. And the reason I played that segment uh, is that it begins, though we didn't quite hear it, uh, with a wonderful argument uh, between Khrushchev and Nixon about whether or not uh, the Soviet Union could do color TV. See, what you're seeing there in that clip is one of the first ever color video recordings. And the Americans, uh, for whom Richard Nixon was acting as salesman extraordinaire, were pitching this as an example of what the United States could do uh, that the Soviet Union could not do. And the wonderful thing about this impromptu press conference debate is the gusto with which Khrushchev insists not only that the Soviet Union can do that, but it can do everything that the United States can do and more. And what I want to do is reflect this evening uh, on whether it was a foregone conclusion that he would be proved wrong. Because today, today that clip seems hilariously funny. And indeed it elicited uh, the mirth I'd hoped. When I was making a television series, The War of the World, on 20th century conflict, we deliberately began the fifth episode on the Cold War with that sequence, with a little extract from that sequence. And after that was played, I wandered around uh, the Park of Economic Achievement in Moscow, making frankly rather snide jokes about Soviet economic performance after 1959. Was it a foregone conclusion? It's certainly tempting with the benefit of hindsight to say that it was inevitable that Khrushchev would lose. Inevitable that in this respect at least Richard Nixon would be vindicated. That Nixon's simple claim that he made over and over again despite Khrushchev's bulldozing style of debate that the United States was ahead economically and would stay ahead economically was in fact correct. When you look back on the 1960s, and here are just two of umpteen advertisements I could have shown you from, from that period, it seems self-evident that the Cold War's economic struggle would be won by the United States. Think of this. Jeans, denim, workmen's overalls. You might have thought would be something that the Soviet Union could make, since it was, after all, the workers' paradise. And jeans are not that technologically complex as articles of clothing. Essentially, a few pieces of denim stapled or sewn together. Even with respect to jeans, the Soviet Union failed to the extent that by the time I knew Eastern Europe in the early 1980s, 
Levi's were virtually a currency among young people behind the Iron Curtain. And when you saw the really awful ersatz jeans that the Soviets manufactured, you immediately understood why. So it seemed like a foregone conclusion that an economy that couldn't even make jeans that people wanted to buy was bound to lose to the economy that produced both Levi's and Wranglers. Uh, it's a striking contrast, isn't it? The consumer goods of real existing socialism did not compare favorably with the hot rods and the denim flares of real existing capitalism. There's a great line from Regis Debray, who said, there's more power in rock music and blue jeans than the entire Red Army. If you've seen Tom Stoppard's play Rock and Roll, you'll know just what he meant. And it seems pretty clear. When it came to a contest over consumer goods, not just jeans, but the whole panoply of things that made the 60s what the 60s were, the Soviets couldn't cut it. It was, therefore, from the vantage point at least of Western Europe, a foregone conclusion that the Soviet empire in Eastern Europe would crumble and die, as it did between 1989 and 1991. Events that were formative events for me personally. Let me uh, tell you about the scoop that never was. I was a young uh, graduate student in the summer of 1989, and I was living and working in Berlin. And because in those days, as I suspect is true today, British graduate students weren't terribly well paid, I had to eke out my existence by moonlighting as a journalist. And I financed the writing of my DPhil uh, by appearing under a variety of pseudonyms uh, in the British press. In effect, I covered uh, West Germany for the Daily Telegraph under the alias Alec Campbell. And when I really was hard up, I would prostitute myself, no, not literally, <laughs> uh, but metaphorically by writing for the Daily Mail, <laughs> which just goes to show that what goes around comes around. I, um, I, I was in Berlin in, in July of 1989. And I'd spent a lot of time in East Berlin because, as a Brit, it was easy for me to go back and forth. And I'd traveled uh, in East Germany a little. And I'd seen for myself uh, just how astonishingly backward the East German economy was. As soon as you got 500 yards out of Alexanderplatz, it was extraordinarily obvious that there had been no investment in the infrastructure, in the buildings, since 1945. The shell holes were still there that the Red Army had left. And so it was staringly obvious to me, just with the evidence of my own eyes, that a major economic problem was looming uh, in at least that part of Eastern Europe. And it seemed an obvious inference that if the East Germans were in trouble, then the situation in Belarus was hardly likely to be better. So. In the summer of 1989, noticing 
an increasing number of East Europeans traveling from East Berlin to West Berlin, including Hungarians and Poles, something that I'd never witnessed before because there was a period for many years, really, from 1961 right down until the summer of 89 when you traveled alone back on the S-Bahn from Friedrichstrasse because nobody else could come over. And some of you will remember that experience. Well, in the summer of 89, that changed because relaxation of travel restrictions in other East European countries began fundamentally to alter the dynamics of travel in Central Europe. So I was very excited. I thought, here's an opportunity to make some money. So I phoned up. In fact, I didn't phone up. I wrote a piece and filed a piece with the headline, The Berlin Wall is Crumbling. Can you imagine if that had been published? The kudos that I would have earned. I could dine out on that story for the rest of my life. But it wasn't published. It was spiked. And the duty editor explained, well, Neil, <clears throat> I've spoken to the editor, and quite frankly, he thinks you've been listening to one too many Ronald Reagan speeches. <laughs> so the scoop didn't come my way. And when the wall did come down, as I predicted, I was in Cambridge by even more bad luck on the eve of my Viva Voce uh, DPhil examination. And that was when I realized I was going to write history rather than make it. <laughs> Let's now turn from anecdote to hard evidence. If the end of the Cold War, the economic failure of the Soviet Union, was a foregone conclusion, is there good data to support that hypothesis? I think there is. As I'm about to show you in a series of uh, slides, the growth rate declined dramatically in the Soviet Union after Khrushchev's period in office. Perhaps more importantly, total factor productivity, a measure of the efficiency of the utilization of economic resources, plummeted to the point that uh, Soviet factories were value subtracting. The raw, raw materials were worth more when they went into the factory than when they came out as finished products. <laughs> Just as uh, Friedrich Hayek, the great genius whose spirit still hovers over this institution, foresaw, price controls and a planned economy fundamentally did not work because in the absence of market signals, resources were grotesquely misallocated so that, for example, steel consumption was four times higher in relation to GDP in the Soviet Union than in the United States. Monstrous inefficiency was, in fact, a predictable consequence of economic planning. As Stephen Kotkin has recently argued, the only thing that kept the show on the road after 1969 was uh, the subsequent rise of the price of oil. And the Soviets discovered, to their great surprise, because they'd never thought about this before, that, in fact, they might possibly be sitting on rather a lot of fossil fuel and that exporting this might be a way of making money. This was the Armageddon averted of Kotkin's recent book. Andre Schleifer, my colleague at Harvard, has analyzed theoretically why corruption was endemic in the planned economic system. 
the whole incentive structure was screwy as well as, as well as the moral structure. You pretend to pay us and we pretend to work, just like British academic life, only worse. <laughs> Moreover, as Paul Kennedy argued at the time, though he was subsequently uh, mocked for his excessively pessimistic views on the Uni United States, it was indeed the case that the Soviet Union was crippling its econ economy with excessive defense expenditure. The great disaster at Chernobyl just illustrated what was bound to happen somewhere sometime because of inadequate allowance for the depreciation of the capital stock. And then on top of that, you had endemic, rampant alcoholism. So here are the data. If you look at gross national product uh, annual growth rates, it's here divided into various sub-periods from 1950 through to 1985, or uh, GNP per employed person, or total factor productivity, or the revised TFP data that the CI produced, it's a story of pretty spectacular decline. From the high hopes of the 1950s, the Soviet economy essentially stagnated. And from 1975, negative productivity growth was a clear sign that it was on the critical list. We have some reasonable data actually now for the economic performance of the Soviet Union, uh, various component parts of the Soviet Union, and satellite states in Eastern Europe. Uh, notice here that uh, there are two sub-periods. We have more for the second, 1950 to 73, 1973 to 90. Uh, the interesting thing is that in the 1950 to 73 period, uh, the countries for which we have data had relatively robust economic growth rates. These are per capita GDP inflation-adjusted numbers. Uh, you can see, for example, uh, that uh, Yugoslavia was growing rapidly, Bulgaria was growing rapidly, Romania was growing rapidly, and even the Soviet Union on these numbers was managing a 3%, 3.5% annual growth rate. But when you look at 1973 to 90, it is a story of unmitigated failure, and in some cases, catastrophic underperformance. Notice the extremely poor performance of the stands, uh, the Central uh, Asian uh, republics, and of Poland, which was on a fast track to economic breakdown uh, in the run-up to the revolution. If you compare the rate of growth of total factor productivity uh, with the major Western economies, and particularly with the West European economies, where productivity grew very rapidly, uh, even in the 1970s, when the USA, in fact, performed quite badly, it's clear that the USSR was in serious trouble, indeed in chronic trouble. The sad truth was that despite the exaggerated estimates that the CIA made for a time, Soviet GDP by the end of the Cold War was probably more like 36% of US GDP, which was not a massive improvement on 1945 when it had been around 27% according to Mark Harrison's estimates. That was not really a case of we will bury you, that was a case of we will be buried by you. And if you look at per capita consumption, it was roughly a quarter of the American level. Basically the Soviet Union had an average standard of living equivalent to that of Turkey. The defense expenditure story is unquestionably a part of what went wrong. In order to match the three or four times larger US economy in an arms race 
that was conducted at every level from space right down uh, to espionage, of course the Soviets had to spend a significantly larger portion of their gross national product on the military. The estimates for this are incredibly unreliable. Uh, there was an enormous amount of smoke and mirrors during the Cold War to disguise the scale of the Soviet defense budget. But it seems a reasonable figure, and I've used it here, that on the eve of collapse, even at the end of Gorbachev's period of reforms, the Soviet defense budget was still around 14%, 1-4% of estimated gross national product. Whereas at that time, even in the wake of Caspar Weinberger and Ronald Reagan's defense expenditure increases, the United States was basically averaging 5%. So that side of Paul Kennedy's story was right. If only he'd concluded the rise and fall of great powers by predicting the collapse of the Soviet Union and not the collapse of the United States, we might all take that book more seriously. <laughs> the um, story that Kopkin tells is clear. It's the explosion of oil prices in the 1970s and two great surges um, in 73 and 79 that essentially provides a lifeline uh, for the oil-rich uh, Soviet empire. And one of the things that the Soviets were able to do as a result of uh, that uh, great surge in oil prices was borrow a lot of money. So they ra rushed to the uh, uh, foreign currency markets and throwing aboard, overboard their various prejudices against capitalism uh, got deeply into debt uh, to Western banks and agencies. This was another way of keeping the show on the road. Without this hard currency borrowing, the economic trouble would have set in sooner than it did and 1989 would probably have happened much closer to 1979. In one of many social indicators I could show you of what was going wrong, not just at the level of macro data, but at the level of everyday life. Here are some figures for male life expectancy at birth. The Western world has been very good uh, for a roughly a century at delivering steady improvements in life expectancy, which is why uh, the students at LSE have a reasonable chance of living longer than the professors, a depressing thought for me, but not for the majority of you. This was something that the Soviets and their satellites totally were unable to do. In fact, uh, life expectancy flatlined uh, in the Soviet Union and even in its Western republics like Belarus right the way from the 1960s to the 1990s. Zero improvement in Belarus, a brief spike uh, in the Soviet Union, followed by a total collapse if you take these data forward after 1990. It's very important, if you are a historian, to admit what you got wrong. Many people in the profession find this more or less impossible, though they don't find it as hard as economists. <laughs> I'm going to tell you what I used to think, what I used to teach. I'm even going to show you some old slides uh, from when I taught at Oxford. And then I'm going to tell you what I now think about this whole question, about the foregone conclusion hypothesis. Let me first tell you what I used to think in a very Eurocentric way about the economic story that I've just sketched for you in data. This is how it went. 
The situation in Europe at the end of World War II was dire everywhere, in the West and in the East. There had been a rise in population somehow incredibly despite the ravages of war, but industrial production was down on average 40%, even more in some places. And European countries had almost no ability uh, to raise foreign funding for the imports they desperately needed. Industrial production in Germany, or at least in the western zone of Germany, was at something like a third of its 1938 level. Only those countries that had stayed completely out of the fray, like Ireland and Sweden, could report a relatively stable standard of living relative to the pre-war period. The worse it was, with very few exceptions, the more attraction communist parties had. This chart just shows you the percentage of votes going to communist parties or coalitions with communists in them in the immediate post-war elections that were held in Europe. Even in Switzerland, the communists got votes. In Yugoslavia, they dominated the electoral scene. In Poland, in Romania, in Czechoslovakia, in Bulgaria, but also in Italy, in East Germany, in France, in Finland, and in Belgium, even in Sweden, they were serious political contenders. It was a no-brainer. Capitalism caused the Depression. According to communist propaganda, it also caused fascism. The communists had been prominent in their resistance, sometimes suicidal, uh, to fascist uh, authority. And the Soviet Union had done the bulk of the dirty lifting, the heavy lifting in the fighting that defeated the Third Reich. What was the answer to this question? The answer was the Marshall Plan. Europe must have substantial additional help or face economic, social, and political deterioration of a very grave character, said General Marshall at Harvard, June the 5th, 1947. And the way I used to teach it, this was the key to the post-war miracles in the West European countries that got the aid. But because Stalin refused to let countries in his sphere of influence accept the aid, they didn't have economic miracles. When you look at the impact of martial aid plus domestic economic reform in a whole range of West European countries, spectacular growth ensued. These are per capita GDP annual average growth rates, 1950 to 73, and you can see that a significant group uh, of West European countries were growing at 5%, even higher in the case of Spain. And only the UK was limping along at a rate comparable uh, with Eastern Europe. Why did martial aid work? The way I used to teach this was that, although it wasn't a massive amount of money in relation to recipient GDP, it did a lot to leverage domestic investment. Uh, and the investment boosted economic growth dramatically. There was a big multiplier. It also, crucially, as Barry Eichengreen and Brad DeLong pointed out recently, helped finance the imports that they desperately needed in the transition from war to peace. It was used by the Americans to promote trade liberalization and, as Charles Mayer and others have shown, to Americanize West European business. This was aid with conditions attached. And, of course, it was part of a bigger package that included a security umbrella that essentially West Europeans didn't need to pay for. 
When you look at uh, martial aid from an American point of view, it was a great deal. Maybe 1.1% 1, 1 .1 of US GDP, but uh, it had the effect of transforming Western Europe from a basket case into a thriving and broadly pro-American sphere of influence. Notice, mind you, that the biggest recipients were not the best performers. And this is where my old version of the story begins to look a little dodgy. Uh, the United Kingdom was the biggest recipient of martial aid, and you'll remember from an earlier slide, the worst economic performer in Western Europe after the war. So, second way I used to explain it to students, it must have been internal factors. Starting from a really low base led to rapid economic growth. The more you'd been flattened, the better. This was Manka Olsen's old story about why West Germany did well. It was tabula rasa, start from scratch. You had abundant labor, often very skilled labor, fleeing from the Soviet zone of occupation. And, not least because of authoritarian regimes in the 30s and early 40s, you didn't have the old problems that had disrupted 1920s life of overpowerful uh, trade unions. On the contrary, a new labor relations model, corporatist in Mayer's term, was brought in that reduced strikes and improved labor harmony. The contrast in the West German case between pre- and post uh, 1930s is really striking. Germany had an abysmal record of labor relations in the 1920s, one of the worst in Europe. After 1950, it had about the best. And then, of course, over and above that, you had a political shift from the extremes of the interwar period to social democracy and Christian democracy. Everybody, as Hayek pointed out, believed in planning, believed in a new model in which the state would play a bigger role than it had played before. Welfare states sprang up everywhere. They took different forms from Britain to France to Germany to Italy uh, with different roles played by different institutions, but the net result was the same. A new social model that offered consensus, that offered benefits rather than the harsh judgment of the market. Here's some interesting uh, long-run data. Here are some interesting long-run data showing how social services expenditure rose dramatically as a percentage of gross domestic product, especially from the 1940s. Notice there how Britain outstrips the competition. Really, few West European countries had more ambitious plans for expanding welfare than the United Kingdom. And what was the alternative? The alternative was real existing socialism. You paid reparations to the Soviets to the tune of $14 billion. You found your economy regulated by Stalinist five or six year plans. You had collectivization imposed on your agriculture if you were unlucky enough to be in the Baltic states or Romania. And uh, you had forced labor in good old Stalinist fashion, yet more canals, yet more slave labor camps. And the beneficiaries, a new class of apparatchiks who set themselves up at the various interstices of the planned economy to engage in rent-seeking behavior. Not a difficult choice, you might have thought. Why was that story wrong? Why was I teaching students a kind of fairy story about the post-war world? Well, for two reasons. One. I neglected to point out that this wonderful model that I had described to them completely malfunctioned 
in the 1970s, which you'll remember is slightly before the end of the Cold War. The West's slide into stagflation from the late 1960s through the 1970s totally, and I mean totally compromised the claim that Nixon had made in 59 that the Western model was massively better than the Eastern model. That just stopped seeming true. And if you doubt it, oh, younger members of the audience, take a look at this. Let's look at the extent to which, in fact, economic performance was not spectacular uh, in the West, even in the period before the stagflation era of the 1970s. In fact, the performance of the UK and the USA in terms of economic growth, if you take Madison's data, was closer to India than to the star performers at the other end of this chart. In terms of productivity, too, the Western model wasn't delivering on anything like the promised scale. And by the time the 1970s came along, the story only got worse. Double-digit inflation is not much fun. I hope we won't discover that again in the too near future. But at any event, for our purposes, the main thing to remember is how very badly things went wrong in the mid-1970s. And not just uh, in the US. In fact, the US did comparatively well in a whole range of countries that had been beneficiaries of the post-war American underwritten order. Not least, Britain, which, it's easy to forget, by the, late 19, uh, by the mid-1970s had inflation above 25%, and by 1976 had to call in the International Monetary Fund to cope with its chronic fiscal and monetary problems. Here are the UK retail price data for the 1970s. It's very salutary to be reminded of the mess we were in then. And here's the FT All Share Index, nominal and adjusted for inflation. Adjusted for inflation, you see that Britain actually had a great crash. For an investor, it all went horribly wrong after around about 1972. Secondary banking crisis, chronically incompetent and weak governments, yes, and even a housing bubble. It's easy to forget this kind of thing, uh, and people did. You may remember those people who said that property prices never went down. I wonder what they were smoking in the 1970s. <laughs> because to miss this bubble was really quite an achievement of amnesia. So the first problem, the first problem with my just so story, is simply that it underestimates the massive problems that the West encountered in the 1970s. At a time, remember, when high prices were in the oil market benefiting the Soviet bloc, giving it, in effect, a new lease of life. Malaise, that word inextricably associated with President Jimmy Carter, seemed to hang over not only the, uh, North America, but also over Western Europe. Now, let me tell you, in the remaining uh, part of this lecture, what I think now. And it's very different from what I used to think about the political economy of the Cold War. Ladies and gentlemen, Western Europe's performance in the 1950s and 1960s was not the big surprise of the post-war period. Western Europe had already been industrialized. It had then been blown apart by the Depression and the war. And after the war, it was rebuilt. 
not really that remarkable a phenomenon. Far more remarkable was the growth of the economies of East Asia, led by Japan, but in the case of, say, an economy like South Korea's, starting from a far lower base than even the poorest West European country. South Korea in 1950 was a poorer country on a per capita GDP basis than Ghana, than in fact most African countries. And yet South Korea and other economies like it experienced astonishing and sustained growth. Japan, South Korea, Hong Kong, Malaysia, Singapore, Taiwan, and even Indonesia. These were the economies that consistently throughout the Cold War outperformed everybody else. Now, as Anna has pointed out, where economic performance was poor in the third world, in sub-Saharan Africa and in Latin America, tremendous opportunities presented themselves to the Soviets. But when you look at the part of the world where that didn't happen, where economic performance was sustainably strong, there were very, very few levers the Soviets could pull. What's really striking when you put it in this perspective is that South Vietnam was the exception that proved a very strong rule of Asian predominance, China aside. In that sense, the decisive year in the Cold War was not 1989, the end of the story, but 1979, the year that Deng Xiaoping went to the United States, donned his Stetson hat, and effectively acknowledged that the rest of East Asia had got it right, and it was time for China to join the party. The big story of post-war history is Asia. Just look at the shares of gross domestic product of the world. The Asian share rose from 14% to 34% between 1950 and 1990. Western Europe shrank from 36% to 22%. North America shrank from 44% to 26%. I'm enough of an economic reductionist to think that's probably quite important, and that any explanation that privileges Christian democracy in Italy above economic miracles in Asia is a pretty lousy explanation. Now, the really, really important point is the sustained and indeed accelerating nature of East Asian economic success. This chart, using data from the World Bank, breaks the whole period into decades. And what you can see there is how things got worse in the developed countries. The growth rate fell in the high-income OECD countries, which is basically Europe and North America. It deteriorated dramatically in Latin America and Sub-Saharan Africa after 1980. But in East Asia, things actually improved. Each decade was better than the one before. If you compare Japan's performance with the performance of the West European economies, it's out of sight stronger. This is just productivity measured in output hour uh, output per hour in manufacturing. The Japanese soar out of sight in this period, and data for South Korea and the other economies I've mentioned would not be significantly different. 
This is the big story of the Cold War, uh, at least in terms of economic history. Japan, Singapore, Hong Kong, uh, South Korea, even Thailand. The growth rates in these economies seem to me to be the real key to understanding the political economy of this period. And again, if you do it in a comparative perspective, here I've I've ranked countries by their performance in the later part of the Cold War. The achievement is truly astonishing. Let's focus on the 1973 to 1990 growth rates uh, here as shown in green. South Korea in this period grew uh, at an average annual rate of just under 7%. Thailand was not far behind. Hong Kong was almost neck and neck with it. Singapore was almost neck and neck with Hong Kong, which incidentally tells you something interesting about economic models. They don't hugely matter, since Hong Kong had a completely different model uh, from Singapore. Then Taiwan, and then Malaysia. By the time you get down to Indonesia and Pakistan, it's less spectacular, sure. But look at Latin America and Africa, which I put at the bottom of the chart for reference. Growth in Latin America and Africa was miserable in this period. Is it any wonder that the flashpoints of the Cold War in the Third World came there and not in East Asia? So the challenge is to understand Asian success, and particularly East Asian success, and to see what it signifies for the outcome of the Cold War. Now I'm going to offer some conclusions, which I hope will upset you. <laughs> Number one, it proved to be tremendously good for a country uh, to have a long-term security guarantee from the United States based on the aftermath of a successful military uh, intervention. That was the story in Japan. That was the story in South Korea. Implicitly, at least, it was the story in Taiwan, which had its existence underwritten uh, by the US. Second point, under this security umbrella, radical economic reforms were undertaken in these countries that significantly boosted their economic performance, of which perhaps the most important is also the most neglected. I wonder how many of you uh, are aware of the radical nature of the land reform that General MacArthur and his men imposed on Japan after World War II. In 1946, there was a complete abolition of feudalism in Japan and a wholesale transfer of land uh, from the feudal uh, elites to the people, the tenants who worked the land. Hernando de Soto and I were talking about this the other day. And we concluded that this was one uh, of the magic bullets that gets no credit for Japan's subsequent, astonishingly successful economic performance. And as he remarked, the intriguing thing about the neglect of this in the literature is that Americans today don't understand how important that kind of reform is in the aftermath of a military intervention. Empowering people as property owners is the single most important thing you can do if you want a capitalist economy to function. And that's precisely what happened uh, in Japan after World War II. Thirdly, these countries were the principal beneficiaries of the economic order that the United States created after 1945, with its combination of increasingly free trade and increasingly mobile capital, 
the U.S. created a perfect environment uh, for an economic strategy based on the export of manufacturers uh, to the developed world. It was a very benign environment, and these economies that I'm talking about, to varying degrees, benefited from it. American foreign direct investment and American consumption, this is one of the key arguments of Charles Mayer's recent book, Among Empires, were the juice on which the economic miracles of Asia fed. But if one looks at the engine itself, the engine was an extraordinary synthesis of the state and the private sector, focusing on productivity gains in manufacturing. It worked so well that eventually even the Chinese adopted it with results that we are living with today. Like almost everything I do and say, this argument poses problems for liberals. I'm sorry about that. Because part of what I'm saying is that US military intervention in the past was very successful in creating the basis not only uh, for loyal allies, but for economic miracles. And we should add into the equation the success of British uh, military intervention in Malaya, the great success of counterinsurgency in Malaya in keeping the communists out laid a foundation uh, for that part of the world's relative success in the Cold War era. South Vietnam, to repeat, was the exception that proved the rule. If the Americans had not flunked South Vietnam, it would have been South Korea 2.0. That's a perfectly plausible counterfactual. The mistakes were made, and here I do increasingly agree with Henry Kissinger, not in Vietnam, but in Washington, D.C., that was where the war was lost, to the great cost of the people not only of Vietnam, but of Cambodia. Another problem for liberals that follows from this argument is that economic success in East Asia was not the function uh, or achievement of democratic institutions. You know, the Chilean uh, president is in town doing a well-deserved lap of honor for rescuing uh, those uh, miners. But uh, think how much more we've heard of other Chilean leaders uh, in this country in the past. Think of the uh, great indignation uh, which always greets the name of Pinochet uh, whenever it's mentioned, uh, particularly at the London School of Economics. Why is so much less opprobrium heaped on, for example, General Park Chung-hee or General Chun Doo-wan? They too were dictators, military di dictators, and they too were certainly abusers of human rights, arguably on a larger scale than Pinochet. And they too presided over economic reforms that ultimately, just as one can say of Chile, put their country on the path to economic success and ultimately to a democratic transition. Whether one looks at South Korea or Singapore, or Indonesia, even Taiwan, even Japan, where a one-party state prevailed throughout the Cold War, the story is remarkably similar. Although the economic miracle was usually followed by a democratic transition, we cannot attribute it to democracy. Moreover, success in these economies was not based on a standard market model. The role of the state, 
from Singapore, with the notable exception perhaps of Hong Kong, to South Korea was really very significant indeed. In a sense, these countries benefited from a free market environment, from an increasingly open world that ultimately earned the title of a globalized economy. But domestically, domestically they were not run in the sense that Adam Smith had in mind when he described the ideal economy in the wealth of nations. So those are the problems that my argument poses for liberals. On the other hand, one must say that this economic or political economic model worked a great deal better than the alternative, which increasingly was adopted by American policymakers after the initial successes of the 1950s. The alternative was to intervene after things had gone wrong, not preemptively, but ex post. And ex post interventions in Iran, Guatemala, Congo, Brazil, the Dominican Republic, Chile, even when they were, from the vantage point of the CIA, successful, had none of the benign consequences that I've been describing in cases like South Korea. And when interventions failed, as they effectively did in Indonesia, Cuba, needless to say, South Vietnam, not to forget Angola, Ethiopia, and Afghanistan, well, the consequences could be truly economically cataclysmic. So if one had to choose between models, the Japan-South Korea model of winning rather than intervening after the fact looks an awful lot more attractive. I want to conclude with one of those counterfactual questions with which I hope I shall be associated long after I'm dead. <laughs> I want to ask, would the United States have won the Cold War if East Asia hadn't experienced the economic miracle that I've described? If East Asia had been like Latin America, or if it had been like Sub-Saharan Africa, a far from remote possibility, how might the Cold War have turned out? Because as I will argue in the next public lecture that I give here, the date of which, of course, I've forgotten, it is in the future. <laughs> the Soviets were a great deal better positioned to win what deserves to be called the Third World's War. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Neil. Um, uh, we disagree on Chile. Uh, we disagree on, on uh, the post-factum post interventions. Uh, but we agree on a hell of a lot of other stuff, actually. So I'm one, sort of wondering what kind of liberal I am. Um, You've been mugged by reality. Yeah, well, no, 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 no. It's, it's having to chair... Uh, uh, I think the issue is having to chair a lecture by Professor Ferguson, which could be seen as a way of being mugged by reality, of course. Now, what I was wondering about is this. We'll, we'll, we'll take questions for about half an hour, but let me, let me just start with one, though, Neil, while people are catching their breath, quite literally, after this. I think you're entirely right about there being two great stories here that come together around 1970, maybe early 1970s. One is the story of the Cold War. The other is the story of the rise of East Asia. 
And I've been wondering for some time how these connect. And I think you, you, you presented a fully plausible argument along some lines of how they, how they link up. I think you were entirely right in what you were saying about the contribution of the changes in East Asia, with the most important change, in quotation marks, being the continued growth through the 1970s, and how that influenced the outcome of the Cold War. But what I'm wondering about is, in a way, the opposite, taking your counterfactual at the end and sort of turning it upside down. How much of this would have happened, could have happened, if it weren't for the Cold War? In other words, the kind of policy that the United States led, including in the 1970s when it couldn't really afford to do so, with stimulating open markets, at least for its friends. I mean, its enemies, of course, were embargoed and, and, and isolated. Um, and insisting on that, when that kind of policy, for instance, with regard to, to Japan, came under tremendous pressure in the United States itself, how much that in itself, as a political or strategic policy uh, came to influence the kind of growth that we saw happening in East Asia. In other words, was it the Cold War circumstances that were critical for the kind of hyper-growth that we saw happening, first along the coast and on the islands, and then when China became a key Cold War ally of the United States inside China itself? Well, thanks, Anna. That's a great question to begin with. And it, it, it directs our focus uh, right squarely on the 1970s as the pivotal decade. Uh, Arne was one of the contributors uh, to an excellent conference that we held at Harvard a couple of years ago on the 1970s, the proceedings of which have uh, subsequently been published with the grandiose title, The Shock of the Global. Uh, and as an international history of the 1970s, I think this volume has, has a lot to offer. One of the things that emerges uh, from this very international collection uh, of essays is the way in which particularly the Nixon administration navigated this extremely uh, hazardous path. Uh, and I think the way to understand it uh, is as follows. The United States remained committed to free trade unflinchingly during and after the Cold War but on condition that there were flexible exchange rates. That was the great innovation of the Nixon administration, the abandonment of Bretton Woods uh, and the decision, and it was a decision, to impose uh, a weaker dollar on the principal uh, success stories of the post-war economy starting with Japan. Appreciation of the yen and indeed of the Deutschmark therefore were the solution to the problem that in a previous generation might have tried to solve with tariffs. And this I think was how they managed to reconcile uh, the obvious contest or conflict uh, between domestic politics where manufacturers were getting badly hurt in heartland states by Asian competition uh, with uh, the maintenance of an open economic order. It turned out to be, as uh, famously the Treasury uh, Secretary Connolly said, our currency, your problem. Uh, and, and that's, of course, st still true. That, that, particular, uh, that particular tenet of US political economy has been more or less an unvarying uh, component 
uh, of every administration's approach uh, since 1971, and we're seeing it in full bloom right now. The other point, which is really important, and it came again from uh, Dan Sargent's work in, in that excellent volume, is that there was in the 1970s a very, very difficult decision to be taken about what to do with the huge surpluses that began to accrue to the petroleum exporting countries. You know, global imbalances are nothing new, folks. Uh, and the imbalances that arose in the oil crisis uh, were in many ways as large in relation to GDP as anything we've seen more recently. There were those who favored in a kind of Keynesian way, maintaining some governmental control over the investment uh, of that kind of surplus. Remember, one of the characteristic features of martial aid had been that in the period of the 1950s, it was the only capital export show in town, and it was essentially state-controlled. And one of the characteristic features of the Bretton Woods system was not only fixed exchange rates, but basically capital controls and governmental-controlled uh, transfers or loans across borders. The decision was taken in the 70s and maintained in the 80s that these large surpluses should be recycled through banks, through the private sector. And that was a very, very important first step in the direction of that financial liberalization that was to be a dominant leitmotif uh, of the 1980s and 1990s. So I think that may be the best answer I can give uh, to your question. It probably sounds a little bit nerdy to some members of the audience, but weird though it may seem, floating exchange rates and increasingly liberal capital movements really provided a solution uh, to the problem that if you are successful in your policies, you create competitors. That's the, that's the dilemma of a liberal uh, superpower. When you succeed, and they did succeed, and you turn your enemies into trading partners, they are also manufacturing rivals, and nowhere more spectacularly than in the ultimate success story of China. And I do think, just to follow on from something you said that's terribly important, there is a continuum here yep that leads from success in post-war Japan right the way through the Asian Tigers to reform in China. It's a, not a straight line, that's for sure, and you've shown that in your, your work on East Asia, but it does seem to me that it is, it is a line. Excellent. Thanks, Neil. Uh, we'll group them. We'll take t two or three questions put together. Could you just indicate you want to ask a question? My dear friend and co-director, of course, is, is out of but do, do, show, do show your hands, both here and, and, and upstairs. Mick. Thank you very much, Arnie, and thank you, Neil, for a wonderful lecture and your wonderful grasp of British technology. Um, by the way, you shouldn't feel at all ashamed sure. for writing for the, uh, for the Daily Mail. I wrote an article for The Sun. And uh, LSE Ideas friends and comrades, including... Uh, Gnossen Vestad there has, has uh, <laughs> dined out on that joke forever. The, the point when they I'm write about you that you yeah, start to worry. Well, That's uh, when you know you're in trouble. I said if I could write for eight million people and you guys could write for a couple of thousand, <laughs> who's winning? Um, I suppose it's, it's, it's a larger question, Neil, which you didn't touch upon, although I think it was implicit. I thought at the beginning of your lecture you, re you were kind of arguing very, very much close to something like a, an over-determination 
that, that given the economic correlation, the forces and all the rest of it, that ultimately we should have known that this thing would come to an end and that one side, the West, the Western economic system, whether in Europe or Asia, the United States, whatever, would win and that the other side would lose. And that, that was really the import of what you were saying, the foregone conclusion, there's a sense of inevitability. Later on in the lecture, I thought it became a bit more contingent about the 70s and other things, but I don't want to go into that. But that's an interesting kind of tension, I thought, in your argument between determinism and contingency. But the, the question is, that if, if everybody was so clear in their minds then, or is it just now that we're clear in our minds, why did so few people predict it? Because at the end of the day, the reality is that if we've got all these economic stats that you put together, and I could add many more to those, of course, being an old Sovietologist, why was it that all the experts, including the CIA, including all the economists that I knew working in the West at the time, Bergson, Alec Nove, I could go through a whole list of people, why is it that they failed to predict what finally happened? Thanks, Mick. Had a question over here. Sure. Yes, the gentleman at the total. Just pause the mic, please. Yes. Hello, yes. Could you comment on the fact that it was not being able to unwind the geopolitical strategy within the Soviet Union that caused the collapse? Then we had a question upstairs, right at the back. Blue shirt, yeah. Please, sir. That one is not on. Could someone turn on that mic? Okay, just yell. As Hayek and a lot of other liberal thinkers have argued, control over the economic, for whatever reason, necessitates control over the political, as the Soviet Union showed. But then, as East Asia showed, and you just highlighted, you can be in control of the political, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you have to be in control of the economics. So that sort of age-old equation has been inverted. But do you think these societies can sustain the sort of catch-up growth that they've demonstrated while still retaining control of the political. Because after all, Chinese GDP per capita is still only 8% of the United States for all its fantastic growth in recent years. And ultimately, when it has to stop copying to catch up and actually has to innovate to catch up, do you think its political system will prevent a hindrance to its growth? Thank you. Neil. Well, thanks for those excellent questions. I'll take them uh, in order. Um, I do think it's far more uh, contingent than, uh, than over-determined, Mick. I, I, I really wanted to create a straw man at the beginning, which was my old way of thinking about it. Uh, and, and in a way, that, that's, that's a helpful corrective. Um, and it makes it seem less of a miserable failure on the part of the, the experts. Uh, you know, the, the reasons why people who were professional uh, experts on the Soviet Union failed to anticipate uh, its demise. Maybe as simple as this, that they were located uh, in a West that seemed from an academic vantage point not to be going too well. Um, when I was trying to explain why people in the 1970s had such a negative view of the 1970s, uh, one argument that I came up with was that academics as a group uh, were the relative losers of the inflation era. Uh, and, and they were. I mean, in real terms, uh, they, they tended to take tremendous hammering in their incomes. Uh, and they also, uh, in the case of uh, an historian like A.J.P. Taylor, saw their investments wiped out because they were tremendously naive about the impact of inflation 
uh, on uh, nominal savings. So I think as a profession, uh, academics were very close to the, uh, the epicenter of the 1970s crisis, and that made them, I think, exaggerate how bad the problems were in the US and in Western Europe. In addition, there were ideological blinkers, and I don't think anybody would now doubt that. The extent to which people in the academy were towards the left and strongly attracted to convergence theory uh, uh, can hardly be overstated. Uh, it was unquestionably the consensus view in Harvard Yard, the kind of thing you'd agree with Galbraith at a party about. Uh, and those who said, this thing's going down, uh, were seen as a kind of uh, rather unsavory Goldwater-like element uh, in the body academic. It wasn't fashionable academically uh, to predict the fall of the Berlin Wall. That's why I had to write as Alec Campbell for the Daily Telegraph. Uh, I fully knew that if it became known to my senior academic colleagues in Cambridge uh, or in Oxford that I was writing for the Thatcherite Press, my chances of promotion would be significantly impaired. So I think there was a degree of ideological uh, wishful non-thinking, to use one of Sigmund Warburg's favorite uh, phrases. The geopolitical consequences, or, or rather geopolitical dimension of, of the Soviet failure is a really uh, important subject. You know, I didn't touch on the Middle East uh, in, in, in that talk at all, and of course you have to, because if there was one thing that uh, they really got wrong uh, in the 70s, it was the Middle East. They were completely outmaneuvered. Uh, perhaps one of the great coups of the Nixon-Kissinger years was the, the disappearance of Soviet influence from Egypt and after that really from the whole, the whole region. And as a sense in which uh, that was part of a wider series of strategic uh, miscalculations uh, culminating at the other end of the greater Middle East in Afghanistan. Uh, one, one can certainly, to emphasize once again the elements of the contingent, one can certainly find the Soviet leadership guilty of a series of unforced errors, of major blunders, uh, which cost them uh, very dear indeed. And then thirdly, uh, the question of, of economic and political control. I've been grappling with this uh, as, a, as a staunch Hayekian and trying to understand what exactly it is uh, in the East Asian model that he would have disapproved of. And this is a really uh, particularly painful question when one contemplates the stunning success of Chinese economic performance today. You could just about live with what happened in Japan or, for that matter, in Taiwan, uh, even in Singapore, because there was the promise, at least uh, a semi-serious promise, of a transition to some freer political order, and that has pretty much been delivered on in Korea, it should be said. Uh, in fact, having just visited Korea last week, I came away very impressed uh, by the extent of, uh, of free speech that's now possible there. And that isn't so very long after uh, military uh, dictatorship. China's more problematic because there seems so little sign uh, of the Communist Party relaxing its control uh, on the media, relaxing its control on political life generally, 
And although one hears occasionally talk of uh, democracy in a Chinese style, that clearly doesn't mean anything other than the continuation of the one-party state. And in some respects, uh, that state has become more rather than less relaxed about free speech uh, and non-governmental agencies in recent years. Can China continue in this way without making any concessions to representative government, to individual political rights, even uh, to the rule of law as it's conventionally understood in the West? That is actually the most important question that confronts the world today, it seems to me. There's one thing for sure, though. They can combine their present political system with innovation. If there's one thing that people in the West should stop saying to themselves, it's what you in your question said. They can't innovate, they can only replicate. Wrong. Wrong, wrong, wrong. In, if you look at uh, uh, patent applications uh, over the last decade, the most striking thing about innovation in the world is that it is already happening more in Asia than in the West. Japan has been in the lead when it comes to applying for new patents for many, many years. Uh, China just overtook uh, Germany and is now uh, clearly in, in second place. The quality of these patent applications is not uh, all that high, so when you look at things that are successfully registered internationally, their share is much lower. But there's no question that they're moving in, I think, the right direction. In other words, it seems possible to be technologically innovative without a truly politically free society. That's the bad news for Hayek. Another question upstairs? Yes, over there. Please. Uh, yeah, just in response to the last point you made about China, I just wonder if uh, Pre Premier Wen's recent speeches um, slightly striking and odd speeches to make in his last two years about freeing up uh, China, whatever he means by freeing up, and increasing local, uh, increasing democracy at a local level actually is, it, it disagrees with the, the conclusion you came to. But the main point I want to make is you're, is really taking on your point about uh, oil price hikes delaying Soviet decline. I suppose this is looking towards the future too. Do you think that, the, that Russia's uh, obvious dependence on gas exports actually should uh, exclude it from being included, included by Jim O'Neill in the monomic brick, that actually Russian decline is inevitable, uh, including also the, the demographics in Russia. We did a, did a round on that um, last week, and I think there was some agreement with what you were stipulating in that question. Um, anyone else down here want to ask a question? Yes, please. Anyone? Emmanuel, you eco LSE ideas as well. I want to question you about your views of the differing post-war narratives, the old one versus the new one. Maybe it's simply just the case that you're talking about the story in Western Europe as opposed to the story in Asia, because I think the old narrative still has explanatory power. For instance, the welfare state is in trouble because it promised too much, but it cannot pay what it promised now. And you can also say that the problems of having to make the West too much of an export market is also becoming problematic at this time in that incomes are not growing anymore so much in the West, but many countries are still looking to export there. So perhaps these are not really conflicting narratives. 
Thank you. We had one more question over there. Yes, please. Yeah. To what extent do you think uh, the collapse of Soviet Union was down to short-term factors, like, such as the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan and uh, the economic collapse leading up to that? Do you think it was less long-term and maybe perhaps the short-term that made it happen in 89 and could it have happened a bit later on? Thank you. Neil? Could the last person who asked that question just wave their hand because I didn't actually locate you? Thanks. Because the... Uh, I can hear uh, the, the voice, but it comes from exactly the same place, wherever you're sitting, because of the <laughs> microphone. I really don't like answering questions to invisible questioners. Um, <laughs> well, I, th I think, first of all, the, 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 the official line uh, in China for some time has been that there's a kind of Chinese form of democracy that can be transitioned to. <clears throat> Uh, but when you actually try and find out what that really is, it turns out just to be slightly broader access to party membership, as far as I can see, rather, rather than any meaningful uh, pluralism. Uh, and I can illustrate that point with the story. Uh, I was in Wenzhou recently uh, making uh, the television series that will come out in, in March. And one of the things that interested us when we were there was the relative uh, growth of of Christian uh, churches, unofficial Christian churches uh, in that city. You know, the trouble we had trying to film uh, any of those so-called house churches, even to take a picture of churches that were there by the road with neon red crosses, was extraordinary. And that, I think, confirms that the regime remains deeply wary of any agency that it does not control, that it is not, that is not within the realm of the party. Of course, you're asking the wrong person about this because Ani knows about a thousand times more about China than I do, and I should defer to him on all these questions. Russia, yeah, Russia should never have been included uh, in that uh, acronym BRIC by Jim O'Neill. I think it was done purely uh, to make it a harder word for people in Asia to say. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds it sounds better than beaches. <laughs> yeah, there there were all kinds of alternative acronyms they could have come up with. It's certainly better than pigs, let's face it. Um, but Bix makes a lot more sense, or Bickies, or whatever you want to say. Um, the the Russian position is unquestionably uh, one of a kind of a continued uh, descent. If I took any of the charts that I showed you and, and t took the story forward, post-1990, through the 1990s, uh, and even through the 2000s, many of the lines would continue their miserable uh, trajectory, of which uh, the worst would be the male life expectancy number, which I think got worse than Bangladesh at one point, and may have improved slightly in the last few years, but only slightly. Um, so one can't feel over-optimistic about a, a country with a declining population and massive reliance on natural gas. You know, the trouble about natural gas is it there turns out to be quite a lot of it that is not owned by Gazprom. Uh, it's one of the very few energy commodities that has declined in price uh, in the last uh, year and a half. And I would venture to say that Gazprom's whole strategy of expanding large uh, areas of, of natural gas uh, exploitation in Siberia will turn out to be an economic failure 
of a monumental scale. So I'm not too long Russia right now. Um, the narratives, um, are they compatible? I think that's a good question. One of the temptations in historical rhetoric uh, is to create false dichotomies, false oppositions, uh, uh, purely in order to make the lecture uh, more interesting and keep the audience awake. So one of the reasons that I presented it this way was uh, to juxtapose a, a Eurocentric version uh, of Cold War history with what I would consider a more global version in the spirit of, of Vestad. Uh, and, and I think that that's really the point. It's not that they're somehow mutually exclusive interpretations. That whole West European story doesn't make uh, zero sense. It's clear that martial aid did matter. It did help Western Europe get back uh, on its feet. Uh, but the point I want to stress is that uh, A, there were countries that did really well without it. B, there were countries that did really badly with it. C, after all was said and done, the great Christian democratic, social democratic synthesis of the 1950s and 60s practically fell apart in the 1970s, except in West Germany. And therefore, I'm not sure how much explanatory power West European quote-unquote success has for the end of the Cold War. And that's really the the critical point here. What was decisive? One of the key arguments I want to make here is that if things had gone differently in South Korea, in Taiwan, in Singapore, in Hong Kong, apart from anything else, the Chinese would not have had that strong example before their eyes of what an alternative economic model could do for them. One of the big differences between being the PRC between being China and being the Soviet Union is that there weren't little enclaves of Russians uh, in little cities around the world engaging in free trade and making a lot of money. Uh, the way there were enclaves of Chinese in Hong Kong and Singapore and elsewhere who were doing just that. So I think the East Asian story, it's not that it's the opposite or somehow negates the West European story. I think it's just more important. And we haven't focused enough on it. I bet you if you looked at what is taught in UK universities about the Cold War. You could count on the fingers of one hand the number of articles, uh, much less books, assigned on South Korea. But South Korea seems like the most interesting case. To go from being poorer than Ghana to being in the OECD, to transition from basically two military dictatorships to a functioning democracy, having been at the epicenter of a huge war I mean, it's the, it's the anti-Vietnam. It's the opposite outcome. And we just kind of don't think about it. We watch MASH repeats. That's about as much attention <laughs> as we give to South Korea. And that brings me to the final question. Uh, how, how much can we explain Soviet collapse with short-run uh, factors? You know, I'm incredibly sympathetic uh, to parsimonious explanation. Uh, the biggest vice of the historical profession is to go right back to Mick's question. We love to overdetermine events. Something big happens, what, uh, what uh, Emmanuel would call a tail event. And no sooner has it happened than the historians arrive on the scene, and despite the fact that this event was completely unforeseen by anybody, they then spend the next 10 years explaining its causes some 10, 20, 30, or 40 years in the past and constructing elaborate chains of events that are tremendously plausible and make great books, uh, explaining something that probably was caused by an event a week before 
I mean, that is the tragedy of the historical profession. Superfluous narratives. <laughs> I, nevertheless, would be very reluctant to come up with an interpretation of the Soviet collapse that just said, it's Afghanistan, stupid, because it's clearly a little bit more than that. Uh, they would not have come so unstuck over Afghanistan if their economy had not already been excessively dominated by the military, underperforming woefully. The sheer disenchantment that the war brought up was already there, I think, embedded in the failure of uh, the whole economic model. So while I'm attracted to short-run explanations, and I, I certainly like to explain world wars in terms of relatively short-run blunders, something like the collapse of the Soviet Union, I think, requires a few decades of stagnation to make sense. Are we going to have fun in ideas this year? Uh, yes, we are. I think it's very, very clear. Uh, not just in terms of what we're going to discuss, but also how we're going to discuss it. Neil will follow up on this dealing with the Third World's War in November. I believe it's November 24th. Can someone nod their head? Yes, November 24th. Be here. Um, fun continues tomorrow. Um, when we will hear Jonathan Power present on the new Machiavelli, how to wield power in the modern world. And since this is by Tony Blair's chief of staff for more than 10 years, it could easily be called how to wield power and lose it in the modern world, I guess. Mick Cox will be chairing that expertly. It's here at 6.30. On Wednesday, over in Ideas, contesting Asian economic integration, US, China, and Japan, with Sean Breslin, Christopher Dent, and myself. But let us now concentrate on congratulating again uh, the LSE for having been lucky enough to bring over <laughs> Professor Richard.